Hello and joining you on November the 29th in a week when a monument of the sports media, Sports Illustrated, had to publicly and rather, I must say, unconvincingly rebut allegations by the Futurism website that SI was in the habit of publishing AI-generated articles written by AI-generated writers with AI-generated names, byline picks and even hobbies. My name is Daniel Freeber and I can assure you that I am the flesh and blood host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll talk a lot about what it is to be human to show vulnerability, fragility, strength and courage on that rather solemn and slightly terrifying note. Joining me to do all of that today is a man who embodies many of those aforementioned qualities. He was an obvious choice today since I'm currently squatting in his house in Mallorca while he hunkers down at commentator camp on another Spanish island. He is not squatting but as ever extremely welcome in the cycling podcast Hacienda. He is the voice of cycling long-time Eurosport commentator. He's Rob Hatch. Rob, how are you doing? Buenos dias. I have to say, it does sound like it was too nice, that intro. Are you sure it's not written by AI? Um, no, no. You're not sure? It wasn't, oh. It wasn't, it wasn't. <laughs> but I did find myself, I, I found myself worrying about your future, my future, as the listeners will know, or as they will remember, um, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was, was it my conversation with Teo Gegenhart or one of the podcasts we did recently? I suggested that the 2024 Tour de France might be the last one because we, we could all be toast because of um, recent developments in AI and future developments in AI. But what a story that was. Um, what a very, very embarrassing story for Sports Illustrated. For such a renowned public publication and somebody that's been sort of the North Star for a lot of people getting into journalism. Very, very worrying. And it was one of those that I almost didn't believe when I read it. I thought it was, you know, the latest joke, the latest thing sweeping social media. But alas, it was true. Alas, it was true. Um, Rob, I spoke in the intro there about well, how are we going to talk about vulnerability, fragility, strength and courage this week? That is because, as sort of teased last week, I mentioned the fact that a documentary was going to be released called Der Gejagte, The Hunted, and it was about the life and times of Jan Ulrich. It was going to be about the life and times of Jan Ulrich. He has been very much in the news over the last few days um, because of the documentary release. It came out yesterday. That was Tuesday in Germany, Switzerland and Austria. I believe it may um, find its way onto screens elsewhere in the coming weeks and months. Rob, it's also Jan Ulrich's 50th birthday at the weekend. So we're going to talk uh, a bit about him, about that, about the documentary, about the, the sort of further layers he's added in the last week to previous doping confessions. We're also going to talk a little bit about well whether we should indeed be talking about Jan Ulrich um, over 15 years, getting on for 20 years after his enforced retirement. A few people have expressed the opinion in the last few days that, well, Jan Ulrich should still be persona non grata in professional cycling, like many of his generation. So all of that is to come. First, we're going to have a news roundup. Um, before the news roundup, 
I think we're going to hear from our good friend Lionel Burney, who incidentally has been busy over the last few weeks um, behind the scenes. He will be for a little while yet, but um, rest assured, Lionel is pulling all of the strings back at Podcast HQ. Um, so here is Lionel before this week's news roundup. Shoot, uh, shoot that out of peloton, cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. Thank you, Daniel. Yes, that's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2, the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. You may remember that Simon Gill and I used the Carew 2 to navigate our way around Scotland on our tour of the football grounds last year. We followed the yellow line. We didn't go wrong once i think there might have been one fairly blatant human error but the Karoo 2 didn't let us down at all on our multi-day ride around scotland and i think that the climber feature even gave me an edge over simon when it came to the hills because i had that little bit of extra data at my fingertips i knew how far it was to the next climb i knew how far there was to go to the top of the climb and i was able to judge my effort accordingly all of our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Carew 2 by visiting hammerhead.io and using the promo code CYCLE at checkout. Now, one other ride that I plotted on the Hammerhead dashboard was the 12 Hills of Christmas. You may remember a couple of years ago I recorded an episode of Explore out riding. Roads are very familiar to me, but I wanted to plot the route nonetheless. And a listener, Laurent Aldebert, a French listener based in the UK, in actual Watford, in fact, if he doesn't mind me saying that. He is planning to ride the 12 Hills of Christmas route on Sunday, December the 17th, in memory of our very dear friend Richard Moore. And Laurent writes to say, it's not an easy route, as the name suggests, but it is a beautiful one. And he hopes that several listeners will be able to join him for the ride. It's on Sunday the 17th of December. Departure is from the Hub Cafe in Redbourne at 9am. And if anyone is planning to join Laurent on the ride, donate what you can to the British Heart Foundation, Laurent says. Uh, we will post the route, uh, a Strava link to the route, in the show notes. And, well, you've still got time before December the 17th to order yourself a Carew 2 and follow the route on your handlebars using the Carew 2. A reminder, you can get a heart rate monitor with the purchase of every Carew 2 at hammerhead.io. What you do is add the two items to your shopping cart and then use the promo code CYCLE at checkout. And all of those details are in the show notes too. Now it's back over to Daniel and Rob. Well, thank you, Lionel. And as promised, it is time for this week's news roundup. Rob, last week we talked a lot about Ineos Grenadiers and what is or was going on there following the news that Rod Ellingworth had resigned from his position as deputy team principal. We also talked about how long it was taking to finalise the signing of the Norwegian 2022 World Time Trial Champion Tobias Foss from Jumbo Visma. Well, don't know if someone at Ineos was listening, but a week later I can tell you that they have at last confirmed Foss's arrival on a three-year contract. There was some eyelash fluttering from Foss in the official statement. He said it was the team he'd always dreamed of joining, and interestingly, there were Two members of the team management quoted on the same communique. That was DS Steve Cummings and managing director John Allert. No sign, um, or at least no word from Sir Dave Brailsford. And we've also not heard any more in the last few days about 
who is going to replace Rod Ellingworth? Um, Rob Hatch, Tobias Foss, good signing. If we see Tobias Foss that we saw a couple of years ago, certainly. I think, I feel, again, I'm, I'm not privy to what's gone on because something, whether it's the announcement you're changing teams and the current team sort of putting you away to race on a, a smaller programme, let's say, could be the, the culprit of his less or decreased visibility, let's say in 2023. I feel a bit sorry for him on that front just because it was the year he was supposed to show off the rainbow stripes. We didn't really get to see him all that often racing in his world time trial champions jersey. Um, we should have seen it in a grand tour and we didn't. Uh, so Tobias Foss, I feel a little for him, but he'll be hoping and I think everybody who enjoyed what a fantastic performance that was in Australia will be hoping to, that we can see the best of him again. Yes, Robert. Interesting in that statement, I can't remember whether it was he or John Allett or Steve Cummings spoke about, well, the fact he's a very good climber. Obviously, he has his time trialing pedigree. His big objective, 2024, one of his big objectives is going to be the Olympic time trial in Paris. But no word yet on which Grand Tour he'll be sort of funneled towards. And, you know, he did have a bad year for various reasons last year. I think that the sort of blueprint for a Tobias Foss performance was in the big mountain stage um, of Paris-Nice, which finished, uh, did it finish at La Colmian or La Cuyol? No, Le Col La Cuyol. Um, he was very strong that day, sort of showcased what a good climber he can be. What a, an excellent climbing domestique he can be. So um, I think we'll see him in that role at some point in 2024. Rob, from a rider changing teams to a team changing names. I'm going to try not to get emotional here as we're talking about a team close to, close to my, sorry, a company close to my heart becoming the title sponsor of a World Tour team. That team was AG2R Citroën. It will soon become Decathlon AG2R La Mondiale or Decathlon AG2R La Mondiale. Be still my beating heart. They will ride next year on Van Riesel. Van Riesel, Rob? Van Riesel? I mean, Van Riesel, Van yeah, Riesel. yeah. Um, again, depends on which Flemish dialect you, you speak. I think, I think you can get away with, since it's a global brand, you can probably get away with a lot of difference. Does Van Riesel exist or is he AI generated or simply made up by someone at Decathlon? Um, they will ride on his I've or her bikes. I've been to the bikes. shop, they do exist. They will ride on his or her bikes anyway. And this week, their official launch in Lille, the team announced the following new signings. Dries de Bont, Sander de Pestel, Gianluca, I'm going to, Gianluca, that's a, a challenging one to pronounce in Belgian. In, in Polofleet. Yeah, Polofleet. Bruno Armirail, Sam Bennett and Victor Lafay. Of course, not new, but remaining faithful to the team is our own Larry Judas. I mean, Warbass. Uh, Larry not having been very faithful to us recently, as those of you who heard his appearance on the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club pod a couple of weeks ago will attest. I offered Larry a shot at a groveling redemption just last night when he called in from Lille. Let's hear from Larry, shall we? So, Larry, you're back um, after your fleeting dalliance with another podcast, a much starrier podcast, <laughs> um, with your, your, tail, your tail between your legs, I hope. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> hopefully grateful that, we're having you, that we've had you back after that betrayal, Absolutely. after that flagrant betrayal. Yeah. Um, and you won't be going anywhere in the next few months. Uh, Larry, um, you, uh, you are calling in from Lille. 
Um, salubrious, very salubrious Lille. Um, Lille, which will host the start of the Tour de France in, when, when is it? Next year, we found out recently. But you are there for another reason. Your team has just been presented, your team for 2024. I'm very excited about it, Larry, because I'm a huge decathlon fan if decathlon was a religion and it is a kind of religion i would be a missionary um <laughs> i'm an, a decathlon evangelist um de, uh, decathlon agitoire la mondiale or decathlon la mondiale. you were presented yesterday larry how how was it um and tell us in one minute tell us what's exciting about this new project new sponsor I mean, there's a lot of exciting things about it. Uh, you know, I think the thing is, is uh, I'm also a really big fan of decathlon, yes. as, as you are. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty pumped about that. What was your uh, last purchase? Like a, what was your last purchase at decathlon? Um, what was my last purchase? I mean, to be honest, I go there pretty frequently. I'm mean, probably tubes. I actually buy tubes there a lot because wow. they're pretty cheap and good. Um, wow. Anyway, but, so uh, sorry. Go on. Yeah. Oh no, no. no. I mean, I, yeah, I'm I'm excited. You know, I think like. They're also a huge company, um, and you know I think they're really motivated to uh, I, I don't know just grow and um, yeah grow their bike brand with us, and then yeah I mean I think uh, it'll be a really nice partnership because they have a lot of um, you know I guess a lot of potential, um, and I, I think it's going to be really cool. So you know they have sort of a similar viewpoint to us as pro cyclists and uh yeah i think you know it's going to be a big investment from them both financially and uh technologically and you know i think they're going to put a lot into it and and that's exciting so i think since they're excited it makes us more excited too when you paused there larry and said they've got a lot of i thought you were going to say money because they've got a lot of money the family <laughs> that owns decathlon or most of decathlon is i think the sixth richest family in france so they have got oh, really? A, they have got a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, Larry, you can't talk too much about the Van Rysel, I think we should pronounce them, bikes. Um, just cough once if they're any good. Cough twice if they're <laughs> terrible. I actually haven't tried it yet, so oh, I, okay. I actually can't. Uh, but I've heard great things. I've so. heard they're very good. And, um, and talking about money and technology, as we just did, um, in L'Equipe this morning, the team manager, Vincent Lavenu, he was talking about how committed decathlon are to r&d um you know yeah. they, they might be more associated with i don't know the place where you go for a, a canoe or a bow and arrow but um <laughs> they do have a lot of resources and they have apparently committed a lot of resources to well developing for example the van Rysel bikes and uh, larry you've also got one of your wishes that you expressed a few weeks ago the development team there's not only is the development team there's also a, an under 19 junior team but the development team will be important for you members of the world tour team won't it yeah absolutely you know i think like it's pretty cool for us because now yeah we're going to be able to pull from them um for you know any race that's not world tour and you know i think it's going to be a really good development team like they have the junior world champion and um among yeah some other really good riders i think the under 23 danish national champion is on the team and so yeah i think it's like uh it's going to be a really good team and yeah it's cool because I mean, it's cool for them. They'll get their chance to race and like pro race with us. And then, yeah, we'll have like sort of more guys to pull from. So, um, yeah, little Larry won't have to do 89 race days again, hopefully. Oh, you say that. You say that. We'll be here till this time next year. We will be reflecting on the 92 
and day yeah, season exactly. of Larry Warbus. Uh, Larry, um, nice new jerseys as well. Um, a few nice new signings. Did you meet any of them? Some fairly notable names: Sam Bennett, Victor Lafay, um, a couple yeah. of others as well. Dries de Bont was one that I didn't see coming necessarily. Yeah, me either. No, I think uh, honestly, I think they did a really good job with all the signings. So I'm rooming with Sam here. We're actually just about to go uh, to a little dinner uh, session. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll send him your best. But uh, yeah, I think he's going to get initiated tonight. So so wow. we'll see. I think he's nervous. <laughs> wow. Um, Sam Bennett made one of the more curious revelations to me that I heard over the last few months um, about his eyesight that he's quite short-sighted but doesn't wear contact lenses. And he, he sort of said that he preferred to be slightly short-sighted in a sprint because <laughs> sometimes the risks that you have to take as a sprinter, well, it's better to see it all in blurred vision. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting logic. I haven't heard that one, but uh, that's good. Larry, um, final thing. If you had to give our listeners one tip about uh, sh to do with shopping in decathlon, what would it be? Mine would be, I'll give you mine. Mine would be, if ever you need to buy socks in Decathlon for any reason, explore all of the sections. Sometimes, in my experience, you find the socks you need for, I don't know, bike riding or running in the cycling section and so on and so forth. Every sort of subdivision has its own sock section. And all, all <laughs> of them are treasure troves. That's yeah, I would say saying. probably don't spend too much time and go knowing what you need because otherwise you're going to just end up buying way too much stuff. <laughs> well, it is the warehouse of dreams. Uh, Larry, we look forward to hearing from you over the next few weeks about how your training's going as um, well, you ramp up towards the new season. Well, Rob, Larry, back in the fold. Um, good to hear from him. Um, good that he's seen sense, seen the error of his ways, um, reaffirmed his commitment to the cycling podcast. Uh, Rob, do you have any tips for shopping at Decathlon? Um, Try to keep your card in your wallet because I find it impossible. <laughs> it's a good job. It's one of the cheaper shops. I went on holiday to Menorca this year, straight after the Tour de France. And as soon as we landed, the first thing we did was to pick the rental car up obviously for those of you who know me will know that it's not me driving um we went down the road about half a kilometer stopped at decathlon i did exactly the same all sorts of supplies i mean i didn't come out with a canoe like i worry that you will do one day and i can see the smile on your face by the way i'm looking at daniel on the camera uh, he's uh, squatted in my office and this is the day he's been waiting for since he can retire happy now because decathlon are in are in cycling in, in all seriousness i'll try to be serious for a moment this is very promising for that team um as i mentioned in my conversation with larry this is a huge huge company their annual turnover is something like 15 billion billion euros and um, biggest sportswear or sports uh, retailer in the world the team's budget now going to be 26 million euros which puts them certainly in the upper tier of world tour teams uh, rob what about their shopping on the transfer market um, an interesting collection of riders that they've added yes um jury's out on that one just as well because vance will have new doesn't have the greatest record in the transfer market. He's pulled off some brilliant signings and some signings that have done really well for him. But he's had a few shockers as well, hasn't he? And sort of big budget shockers in the last few years. Um, the biggest name of that, I think, from where we're speaking, is Sam Bennett, isn't it? And I think we've known about that one for a long time. So that, for me, isn't, isn't on the radar in this conversation. That, for me, was already sort of computed and, 
and for a while. And we all know that if if Sam can get back to his best, that could be a tremendous signing. Do, do you know? Um, do you know there's Victor Lafayette, who they've paid a lot of money yeah, for. Yeah, less than less than he was being. I'm offered, not sure about yet. Yeah, less than he was being offered at Coffee Dis. I think the Arden week is going to be absolutely crucial for Victor Lafayette because certainly on the salary he's on, his status now is that of a rider who's going to be expected to deliver a big result. Um, previously, he's a, he's been a sort of wild card rider who has had these odd sporadic incredible weeks it um luckily enough for his last team coffee this one of those weeks will happen to fall on the first week first weekend of the tour de france he was one of the best riders in the race but um he's gonna have to step up when expectations are being kind of loaded onto him at certain times next season which is going to be interesting uh, rob it occurred to me thinking about sam bennett and thinking about sprinters in general um cycling and professional cycling the world tour and the, the, the calendar all the sort of machinations about the calendar and um, it makes it it makes it very difficult for teams to plan around sprinters if they're not the best sprinter in the world or the second best sprinter in the world um one because often particularly in small stage races they don't know the route until a few weeks before the race itself and you know let's not forget most world tour teams in fact is happening right now in november early december they're getting together and they are coming up with a calendar for most riders for for almost the whole year and they will put down races on those riders calendars without knowing what the course is going to be and what other riders on other teams, what other sprinters, for example, are going to be in those particular races. And for a team like AG2R or teams in the sort of lower half of the World Tour ranking, um, points have become a huge focus, UCI points, um, with a view to not being relegated, losing their World Tour status. And picking up second places, third places, fourth places is valuable. And that's one of the reasons why AG2R will have signed a guy like Sam Bennett. But it's very difficult, isn't it, if you don't know who's going to be riding on what course? It is, and it's difficult for somebody, uh, well, any sprinter, who who has to sort of carry the the weight of the results on the shoulder, the expectation of trying to get those results, I should say, on your shoulder. Thinking of something, let's think about the first big appointment, because, you know, there'll be races in the Algarve and in Valencia, you know, the, the sort of charity shield ones in Mallorca before that, if you like, the ones that, do they count, don't they count? Yes, officially they do, but we all know what we mean when we're talking about that. The first big sprinter's appointment, and this is a recent tradition, if you like, now that's come into the sport, is going to be in the UAE, isn't it, where we expect more or less everybody to turn up. And, and if you get in top five positions there, there's probably... Again, you know, if we're being harsh and to, ah, well, he hasn't won for a while, he might have had a second, third or fourth and picked up a load of points for his team. So we perhaps have to retrain our brains to, yeah, which we to try and consider. look at that a, little, a yeah. little bit more. No, we wouldn't consider that. But you know that within teams they're looking at. From Sam's point of view, I just hope he gets the support he deserves. Because, you know, talking about guys on the green jersey at the Tour, he's an absolute monster sprinter on his day. And when his uh, mentality's in the right place as well, let's just hope he gets all the support he deserves and the people to, to put him in the right place to do what we know he can do. Rooming with Larry, though, that's slightly worrying. Um, watch your back, Sam, is what I'll say. Um, Rob, another semi... No, sorry. Um, speaking of changing team names, we've had confirmation in the last few days that what was Jumbo Visma will be called Visma Lisa Bike in 2024. Another couple of tidbits regarding that. Right, for the commentators, yeah, that one. Yeah. Another couple of tidbits uh, regarding that team. One, a Dutch listener, Rainer van Dahl, 
got in touch to alert us to a recent report in Hetlaster News in Belgium to the effect that Ineos Grenadiers had possibly sounded out Jumbo Chief Richard Plugger about joining their management team. An Ineos spokesperson told us this week that was news to them. And also on Jumbo, Nathan van Hooydonk hinted to a Dutch podcast uh, last week that there may be an opening for him to become a director sportif with the team after his heart problems and enforced retirement from racing in the summer. Another semi-retirement we've talked a bit about in recent weeks is Peter Sagans. The Slovakian will, of course, be doing some mountain biking, possibly the odd road race next year. But in the meantime, he's been beating the best riders in the world. In fact, humiliating Tadej Pogacar in a two-man sprint in the baking... Baking? Uh, nothing to do with cakes and croissants. Um, is that how you pronounce it? Baking? Beaking? Charity Criterium in Monte Carlo. Final news item, Rob, uh, after the lugworm hemoglobin featured last week, we've had the crossover drug story you never knew you needed in the last few days with Groupama FDG chief Marc Madiot suggesting world tennis number one Novak Djokovic should face sanctions for refusing to take a dope test 19 minutes before his Davis Cup match against the British player Cameron Norrie. Djokovic said that the effort to submit him to a pre-match test was outrageous and would have distracted him from his routine, his warm-up routine. Speaking on RMC radio station, however, Madio pointed out that refusing a test is a contravention of the World Anti-Doping Agency Code, specifically, I believe, Article 2.3. Now, Rob, um, point of order on this. Uh, The International Tennis Integrity Agency, who oversee dope testing in tennis, they have tried to clarify, certainly explained why there will be no investigation, no sanctions um, against Djokovic. They've said before Davis Cup matches, teams are notified that uh, a player will have to give samples and the team or the player has the choice as to whether to give those samples before or after the match. Um, Strange that Djokovic, I I don't think Djokovic mentioned this in his interviews. He was suddenly sort of huffing and puffing about just the the basic principle of having to take a test before a match. Um, We should say, should point out that over the past three or four years, this is something that's been introduced to and testing protocols pre-match, pre-race in cycling tests. Jonas Vingegaard took a test or had to give a sample about an hour before, I think it was stage 17 of the Tour de France this year. Um, This is partly as a result of um, what was discovered, um, uncovered in the Operation Adalas investigation, I think 2019, when uh, a skier, Max Halker, was caught in flagrante doing a blood transfusion a couple of hours before I think it was the World Championships and sort of greater knowledge about protocols that might be effective now if performed shortly before competition. So that is why um, pre-match, pre-race testing has become a thing, will become a thing in future. Yeah, two comments on that. Mark Maddy on the British tabloids, what a combination. Um, but it- Yeah, it's, it's been all over the Express, the Mirror. Wow, wow. And that's, that's just journalism gold isn't it certainly entertainment gold if not journalism gold Uh, but on a much more serious note the only thing I will say on this is it is never a good look to start huffing and puffing and moaning about dope tests controls whatever you want to call them Um, 
we know that it can't be nice, you know, knocked up, woken up at five o'clock in the morning sometimes, having to do it an hour before. I understand that. I recognise that. It's not perfect. However, it is not a good look to start moaning and huffing no, and puffing. Especially when, especially when, as we know, as we've seen over the past three or four years, Novak Djokovic is someone who's come in for some scrutiny because there have been viral videos of his entourage passing him um, bottles surreptitiously during matches. That's become a bit of a theme in tennis, in fact, over the past three or four years. No suggestion that they've contained anything illegal, but still, um, you know, as world number one, he's also the number one ambassador for that particular sport. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our longest standing supporters. They've been supporting the Cycling Podcast since way back in 2016. And we're very proud to be supported by Science in Sport, the world leaders in sports nutrition. And if you're planning to join Laurent and Co. on the 12 Hills of Christmas Ride in Hertfordshire in southern England on December the 17th, the ride that I mentioned earlier in the episode, why not stock up on some science in sport products to get you through? Because it's likely to be cold. And when it's cold, I found that the beta fuel is a really efficient way of keeping the energy levels topped up because in the cold, you're burning a lot of calories just staying warm before you even think about the effort put into the cycling and the tackling of the 12 hills on that route so the beta fuel is a really efficient way to keep those energy levels up without having to cram in a lot of real food and fill yourself up and feel uncomfortable on the bike so go to scienceinsport.com they have everything you need for before during and after your ride and while i'm at it I'd like to mention our partnership with MAP, the clothing company in Melbourne, who've been kitting out the cycling podcast for a couple of years now, and they made the very fine cycling podcast jersey last year, which I know many of you will already have. Go to map.cc. There's still time to add maybe a winter item to your wardrobe if you are joining Lauren & Co. on the 12 Hills of Christmas Ride next month. Now it really is back to Daniel and Rob. Well, Rob, before the break there, we were talking about tennis. We're going to carry on talking about tennis um, because did you know, Rob, that on Saturday, that is the 2nd of December, Monica Seles, remember her, turns 50. Why is this tangentially relevant? Because it makes us feel old. Relevant. Well... Monica Seles, nine-time Grand Slam winner, famous, of course, or infamous, I suppose, um, because her career was was badly affected by uh, a really shocking incident in 1993 where she was attacked on court. Um, She was stabbed, in fact, and was never really the same player afterwards. But, Rob, she was born on exactly the same day as Jan Ulrich, who also turns 50 at the weekend on Saturday, Jan Ulrich, uh, 1997 Tour de France champion, who, as I said in my introduction, has been very much in the news over the last few days. Partly, or mainly, because on Tuesday this week, that was the 28th of November, a hotly anticipated documentary was released on Amazon Prime in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria called The Hunted der Gejagte, and it was one of this sort of new, it's an example of this kind of new genre of Netflix streaming service documentaries, which are very much the project, the kind of pet project, vehicles for the main protagonist, in this case, Jan Ulrich, and it, it, 
this particular documentary is a sort of vehicle for Jan Ulrich to break his silence, really. Um, we've not heard a lot from him over the last, well, 10 years, really. And um, we expected big revelations, and there have been some big revelations. Um, Jan Ulrich, of course, who ended his career in 2006 in disgrace when he was caught up in Operación Puerto over subsequent years. There was a sort of drip, drip of information from him, a drip, drip of confessions in which he admitted, you know, slightly more in every sort of interview, in the rare interviews that he gave. But, um, uh, well, to use the words that I employed in my biography of Jan Ulrich that came out last year, he sort of became imprisoned in silence about well, the finer details of exactly what had happened during his career vis-a-vis -vis doping. And um, this limbo, this um, inability to deliver his truths and to tell us what had happened in his career had seemed to contribute to much more serious and, and wider problems that Yanorit was having in his life, um, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and this all culminated in a terrible, I suppose you would say, meltdown in 2018. Um, Rob, I'm going to tell you a bit about the documentary in a minute, and also about the interviews that Yanorit gave ahead of the documentary coming out, but um, I thought we should start really by just um, tackling this issue or addressing this issue of whether indeed we should even be talking about Jan Ulrich. The first thing we should probably address is that in 2018 Jan Ulrich was arrested in a Frankfurt Hotel. Um, he was alleged to have attacked, assaulted uh, a lady, um, an escort. And, well, the case was closed some time later. Jan Ulrich paid a 7,200 euro fine and damages to the lady in question of course anything we're about to say and any sympathy we may be about to express for Jan Ulrich and, and well relief that he's got his life back on track um, obviously does not in any way imply that we condone that kind of behavior behavior that well for which sort of extenuating circumstances were cited namely that he was in a pretty well very sort of deranged discombobulated state at the time high on drugs and alcohol um, nonetheless as I say those charges or that case was closed um, pretty shortly after the incident took place that's the first thing we should set out straight away and secondly, um, I saw a post from your Eurosport colleague, in fact, uh, Philippe Gilbert on Facebook the other day, where he bemoaned the fact that the world and the world's media was talking about Jan Ulrich this week um, and sort of taking the well, taking attention, the spotlight away from the current younger generation who have not been solid. Um, who have not been tarnished with doping allegations or, well, the, the sort of um, well, the, the, the verifiable disgrace um, that, that comes with Jan Ulrich and comes with um, other riders of that generation. And when I was thinking about whether we should indeed discuss it in this week's podcast, um, I remembered a passage that I wrote in that book 
that I um, authored last year, the January um, biography, The Best That Never Was. Um, in 2013, just before the Tour de France in 2013, there was this French Senate report in which all of the samples from the 1998 Tour de France were reanalyzed. And well, what emerged from that Senate report was that the majority of the field in 1998 at the Tour de France um, had been using EPO. And I remembered, um, how sort of unfair that was and i talk about this in the book how unfair that was for the the german riders in particular who were riding the tour de france at the time and they sort of bemoaned this and um, it was good it was it was one of the most successful tours de france for german riders ever in fact with marcel kittel john Degenkolb, and tony martin all starring and they talked about um, the fact that well as a result of these revelations from the French Senate report, all the German press, who by that point, after years and years of scandals, had become obsessed with doping, that was all they were going to talk about. And um, in fact, German national state television had stopped broadcasting the Tour de France live the previous year, I believe. And that whole generation, the Kittel, the Martin, the Degenkolb generation, they had grown up with this constant mood music of Jan Ulrich, Eric Zabel, and so on and so forth. And that was 2013, and that was just before the Tour de France. And as I said, it was the, the, the backdrop for that year's Tour de France. We are now in November 2023, and it occurred to me, it struck me, Rob, that if ever there is a time when it is okay to revisit this issue and to process some of the sort of, well, to tie up some of the loose ends from this generation, the fallout from this generation, and particularly Jan Ulrich, it is probably now. Um, uh, that is not why the documentary has come out this week. I don't believe that the film company made a sort of conscious decision that they didn't want to overshadow racing, current racers. I think it's more to do with the fact that Jan Ulrich turns 50 at the weekend. However, I do think that it is legitimate to talk about him, to talk about it. Um, I think it's interesting to talk about him from a, a human point of view. I said in the intro, we're going to talk a lot about fragility, vulnerability. Um, we'll go on to discuss that in a minute. But um, this is part of the, uh, of the sports history, and this is a, a sport which glories in its history. Um, and it's also a sport which has needed to and will continue to need to learn lessons from this unprecedented dark era in its recent history. We're not talking about 100 years ago. We're talking about 20 years ago. And the riders who we're currently watching and enjoying and who are currently entertaining us, they are still the generation, just about the generation who grew up inspired by the likes of Jan Ulrich and Lance Armstrong. Yeah, with history in general, there's a real danger that if we stop talking about it, we never learn, isn't there? I think uh, just look around the world, there's there's quite a few um, instances and things that, that have happened in the last few years, uh, just in general life, that have shown us that we do need to look back. And, you know, unfortunately, whether it's nice or not, we have to remember things, don't we? And realise why things happen, not necessarily continue to to prosecute or accuse or judge, but just learn from why things happen. And, and in this story, there is so much that we still don't know. Because, I mean, you say it yourself in the book that 
for so long Jan Ulrich didn't say anything because his people thought it was going to be a massive own goal. He really hasn't opened his mouth too much on the subject and you yourself in the book go into a lot of the background of it, which I found fascinating, you know, even the, his social background, the two Germanys, reunification, what it meant coming through one system, then suddenly being a representative of another. There's so much more that it, I think it just if you're, you're an interested person in general life, it's something that you want to know. And yeah, it's important that we do specify and we do state, as as you just did, Daniel, that we're not judging the current generation of, of German riders. We don't intend to sort of sully their achievements or anything like that or put any sort of stain on that. That'd be completely wrong, wouldn't we? So this, yeah, a good time to talk about it now. There's no racing on to, you know, hint or refer to anything in in sort of context with that. This is just a, a look back at what's happened why it happened, or at least an attempt to identify why a lot of it happened, Daniel. Yes, Rob. And, well, we were talking about this sort of off mic last week, and um, you were asking me about the documentary, and you and other listeners as well suggested that um, it might be interesting to discuss this week also because, obviously, um, I did write, well, I dedicated years of my All life All the way to from a sixth form project, I gather, back in, what, 97, well, something like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, you know, the process of uh, of writing the book, as discussed before on a previous episode of the podcast, was pretty torturous for me as well. Um, and it was pretty torturous for you as well, Rob, because you were living with me for some of those seven years. And, uh, well, in fact, the acknowledgements of the book sort of contain a, a, a half apology for, to you for, um, yeah, for, well, some of the difficulties I encountered, which um, came to, were brought to bear on other people. But anyway, um, Rob, just as a sort of preface, just a final point on this issue of processing the past and understanding the past before we get into the sort of nuts and bolts of the documentary. Um, I, write, I write in the preface to the book book and it could be a preface to any sort of discussion now about Jan Ulrich. Um, after the Second World War Germany committed to a long period of repentance and repair but above all understanding that they call Vergangenheitsbewältigung, literally coping with or processing the past took many forms from war crimes trials to television documentaries and public monuments but above all it was about learning as an influential force behind the process the judge Fritz Bauer once said, nothing belongs solely to the past, everything is contained within the present and can still become the future. The Vergangenheitsbewältigung of Jan Ulrich's life and times is a much less fraught and indeed comparatively trivial business, but there are some common themes. After two and a half decades, enough time has certainly now passed for more of the truth and maybe even some reconciliation. Now Rob, this is much more than just a documentary. Um, this is, I suppose you could say, a bit of a coming to Jesus moment for Jan Ulrich um, because of those problems that I touched on earlier, the terrible issues that he had in 2018 when um, he became estranged from his wife and his children and he embarked on this sort of, well, period of, of self-destruction over a few months and in the interviews that he's given and he gave a lot of interviews last week um, he's admitted that he, he almost killed himself um, so bad was his cocaine use in particular combined with whiskey and um, 
Rob, I must tell you that watching this documentary and listening to interviews last week, particularly of all the interviews he gave, I think the best and most detailed one was with a German podcast called um, Hotel Matze, which is one of the best German interview podcasts anyway. I would recommend that to anyone who understands, speaks German. Um, I must say, Rob, I my heart swelled with joy and with, I, I, I suppose I would say pride, um, on behalf of Jan Ulrich, because what he has accomplished, and I, I don't believe that, you know, when someone overcomes addiction issues, um, I, I guess they would say that the, the battle is never completely won, and he will always have to be vigilant and on his guard. But to come from where he was in 2018 to where he is now um, is a phenomenal achievement, and it's a phenomenal achievement both for, for him and also on the part of his entourage, his friends, his family, even people like his ex-wife, um, and he, he, as I said, he was estranged from, his wife was called Sarah, um, and she's now his ex-wife. Um, she has been one of the individuals who've helped him hugely over the last few years. His good friend, Mike Baldinger as well, who sort of took him in back in Merdingen, Black Forest. And what they have managed to accomplish is, is quite remarkable. I say that because one of the things I, I, I think now that I got slightly wrong in the book, having um, watched the documentary and seen him last week, is that I and a lot of other people um, have always described Jan Ulrich as, as a poor communicator and someone who's not very articulate and would never be very articulate. And the Jan Ulrich we saw and heard last week is someone who has obviously done an awful lot of introspection and a lot of internal work and has really been sort of unstinting and unsparing in that process of self-examination and he's developed more insight i i believe and i get the impression than i ever would have thought possible in into his childhood into the love he didn't get as a child because you know his father left the family when he was seven years old into the fact that when he did get affirmation when he did get praise it was always tied to his achievements as a cyclist and his talent as a cyclist and the fact that he was this prodigy and and that then made decisions like the decision of whether or not to dope um pretty pretty much a sort of hobson's choice uh, uh, pretty impossible um i think if we're if we're honest not not many riders in that generation um were, were confronted with that choice and and chose not to dope um however i think in jan Ulrich's case it was particularly difficult because as i say um he built his whole identity on being the best cyclist, the best cyclist initially in his club, in well, in his clubs and school in East Germany, and then later on in every category, he was amateur world champion and so on and so forth. And particularly on the Hotel Matza podcast, he explained how um, it was very difficult to accept, you know, after he turned pro in 1995, that if he wasn't going to dope, then he was destined not to sort of fulfil his destiny as um, someone who'd always been told he was. Uh, you know, what the Germans say, Jahrhundert talent, uh, the talent of, or one of the talents of the centuries. Um, so I think, you know, my, I already had a lot of sort of sympathy for him in various ways, for various reasons before um, I watched the documentary and listened to these interviews last week, but that was, that was certainly heightened. And, um, well, just coming on to the, so coming on to the documentary, 
Rob, um, four parts. Um, it's a fairly four different episodes. Four episodes. Um, it's a fairly traditional and stylistically, I would say, quite old-fashioned documentary. Um, the film can not not like the Beckham and the Robbie Williams stuff that's just come out there. No, I mean in German documentaries until recently, I would say they are stylistically. I, quite old-fashioned in the sense that there's a narrator which we've become accustomed now when we watch documentaries on streaming services and for that not to be the case and I think the Senna documentary was quite um was it was a bit of a trailblazer in that sense that dispensed with the the narrator and now we're very much used to that style this one does have a narrator um it has all of the sort of talking heads most of the talking heads you would expect Ulrich of course is the star and um, we haven't heard him speak at length about his own past um, over the last few years. Really, as I said, he's been sort of imprisoned in this silence since 2006, I suppose. Um, and I suppose that the big ticket sort of item, big ticket revelations are, he says, yes, unequivocally, he says, yes, I don't. And he also says he has, he sort of nuances what he had given up in the past. He said, Yes, I cheated because I cheated the fans in particular. Previously, he'd always said it was about trying to compete on a level playing field with everyone else in my doc in my generation who was doping. Now he acknowledges finally that he did um, cheat. Um, is that is that hindsight and time coming into play? Do you think, of course, knowing the the subject very well and all those around him, or is that more of a management of reputation? I think, I mean, I, I, as well as feeling very proud of him when I watched this documentary, I couldn't also help but feel vindicated. And I think a lot of people will feel vindicated um, in watching this document documentary because one of the conclusions that I came to, as a lot of other people who know him had come to the conclusion over the last few years, was that he needed to discharge this burden which was contributing to his problems, this burden of, of shame. Um although you know he may have acknowledged that he was one of very very many in that generation who doped and they doped also you know we talk about the morality of doping listening to him and it's you can also if you sort of work this through in your own mind there is a there, there's a morality to actually following the herd and doping because as he says um as he said on the podcast last week um, he was safeguarding he was protecting the livelihood of dozens of teammates other people of his generation by by not talking um you know we saw how german cycling really collapsed to nothing in the aftermath of he, him being exposed well he makes the point that had he decided at some point in his career to lift the lid on what was going on not only in his career but also at telecom team telecom then everything would have withered to nothing and families and would have would have would have been would have lost their livelihood um, people would have lost careers and so on and so forth so there is a sort of warped morality um, to to that however um, he has been told in no uncertain terms by many people over the years, and as I said, this was a conclusion that I came to, that shame cannot survive the light. And the way to dis disperse this shame or to dissolve this shame that he felt was 
to be completely transparent and lay everything out and not to worry too much about each individual's moral judgment of that. And this was the approach that I tried to take in the book. And I, I always knew that it was going to be an incredibly difficult needle to thread because I wanted to be unsparing, unstinting and lay out all of the facts. And in the book, for example, there are two or three chapters, well, probably more, which talk almost solely about doping. And I, I laid out all of the information um, that was available to me about the T-Mobile conspiracy, the systematic doping at T-Mobile, and also Eufemiano Fuentes and so on and so forth, um, without trying to impose my own moral judgment. Um, but... I felt in the same way, you know, I talk about this concept of Vergangenheitsbewältigung. That is all about laying out all of the facts. And then the moral judgment comes after. And we, we all have our own sort of moral barometers. Um, but first, the, the, the sort of ground zero is establishing the facts. And, you know, one of the reasons why I say I feel proud of him is that I think he has acknowledged this now. Um, that um, a lot of the fear is sort of vaporized and goes away once the facts are there. And it's much easier then to look at oneself in the mirror and to square one's own choices with one's own conscience. And once you've, once you've done that work, and I think it's clear to me that over the past four or five years, he and his entourage have done a lot of the introspection that frankly, pessimistically, a lot of us thought he would never do, um, but, but felt he needed to. It's not something that I saw coming this, to be honest. Um, certainly after reading your book and you get the feeling that it, it's very much, you know, there's a moat there. There's a, a, a border wall built around that and a drawbridge that's never been pulled down. Not until now anyway. And actually in the opening page of the book, something you wrote really jumps out at me. And, you know, beside the, the context of what came before, you know, his, his upbringing in East Germany, of course, <sighs> difficult you know problems with his father and as well of course how he made his way to the Berlin Cycling Club and then into cycling where he was at the height of his career I mean try getting out of this you write in the summer of 1999 the Old Monde of International Cycling Link indisputably consisted of five athletes Frank von den Brucke, Marco Pantani, Lance Armstrong, Jan Ulrich and Mario Cipollini a 20-year check at that quintet today would make an eye-wateringly grim bit of reading, comprising, as it does, respectively, two deaths by drug overdose. The most spectacular defrocking in the history of professional sport, Ulrich, whose life had tipped from sporting into human tragedy, to borrow Die Zeit's 2018 summation, and Cipollini, who in 2022 was bracing himself for the third year of hearings, in a case brought by his wife for assault and stalking charges, both of which he denies. I mean, it's a pretty bleak setting, that, Daniel. And to come out of all of that, you know, whatever the rights, the wrongs, again, maybe compassion over condemnation, I think, as you say later on in the book as well, when you take everything into account, to come out of that, to be one of the survivors, if you like, and then open the door after such a long time, Again, hat off, whatever your, your moral judgment might be, a hat tip to him for, for finally opening up about it. Yeah, and I think that gives a sense, you know, okay, that's only five individuals, but that does give, give a sense of the extent of the malaise in professional cycling in a certain period of its history. And 
to go back to the, they, they, those guys were a part and a product of but they weren't wholly responsible for that system no then. exactly and I think cycling had and has still a responsibility towards those individuals and has, has to acknowledge the human toll that it took on certain individuals and you know I can fully understand as I said earlier I can fully understand why Philip Schilbert doesn't think we should be talking about it but um, as a sport and even as the media we had our share of responsibility as well in that and I think and um, we owe it to those individuals who were involved and we owe it to ourselves to undertake that process of as i said for gang and heights preventing and processing overcoming coming to terms with the past and this never happened in a formal setting there was the uci produced what they called the circ report i think it was that was early 2015 but it was a, it was a sort of half-baked attempt at this um this process of truth and, and reconciliation and um, unfortunately it's had to mm, take place be carried out on a sort of ad hoc basis an individual basis whereby um, it's been easier for certain individuals than others it's been easier for those with less to lose the the domestiques of that era have been much more forthcoming than the sort of crowned heads um, the likes of Jan Ulrich who you know, as I talk about in the book and as we've touched on in the last few minutes, Rob, he bore the whole the whole weight of this huge cycling boom in Germany um, on his shoulders. It was all really to do with him to a certain extent and with Eric Zabel as well, but mainly um, Jan Ulrich. So, you know, I, I do think it's a hugely important process. There's an, a, a nice... Um, sort of 10 or 15 minutes in the in the documentary series that are dedicated to Marco Pantani and Marco Pantani is a sort of cautionary tale and in fact Marco Pantani's mother Tonina has become quite close to Jan Ulrich because Jan Ulrich is he's the sort of version of Pantani who was able to save himself um, precisely because he has taken this step of of laying himself bare really something that Pantani never did or never could do um Rob, I'll just um, run through a couple more things to do with the documentary, give a bit more of a, a sort of review. Um, I don't imagine that we will have an in-depth conversation should or about this should the documentary come out in English and probably because it will come out um, mid-season when we're discussing other things. I'll try not to spoiler it too much. Um, but yeah, it's got great access, as you would expect, um, as I think I touched on Ulrich himself. Ulrich is, is very um, engaging and very likable. Um, he has this fantastic sort of mischievous kind of cackle of a laugh. And there are some lovely moments in there. You can sort of see the generosity of spirit that he has. Um, there's a lovely moment when the whole sort of format of the documentary is about him retracing key steps in his career, key steps in this sort of ordeal, this kind of cal um, calvary that he's um, been on um, last um, few years. And so he goes back to Arcalis, where he famously took the yellow jersey in 1997. And there's a moment when he's riding alongside uh, uh, an amateur, a sort of weekend warrior. And this weekend warrior doesn't doesn't know who he is hasn't got the foggiest idea and Ulrich sort of introduces himself and um and the guy said oh what's so you rode the Tour de France he said yeah I won the Tour de France and I took the yellow jersey here and um this guy obviously doesn't know an awful lot about 
professional cycling and he, he doesn't even seem that kind of impressed with it but um or it kind of puts his arm around the guy and slaps him on the back and and there you see what a what a people person Yanrick is and and why he he has sort of inspired such affection and 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 affection in people like me who have had nothing to do with Yanrick necessarily but we we were all sort of rooting for him to get better and uh, to find his way back to life which he seems to have done um there's also a lovely moment with them um, uh the gentleman who used to um, sort of oversee or started Yanrick's fan club Eric Keller um down in Merdingen Eric Keller takes what 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 a sort of revival of the Yanrick fan club to Strasbourg where of course Operation Puerta that all played out in Strasbourg and this is where Ulrich begins this journey of redemption in 2022 the summer of 2022 and the fan club sort of converge the the 10 remaining members of the fan club um they convene in Strasbourg to sort of send him on his way and um, that's a really nice moment um a few strange choices of talking heads Ivan Basso um, is is in there with really nothing to say Ivan Basso who of course was also caught up in Operacion Puerto and he's in there sort of saying well this has got nothing to do with me I don't, I'm not really sure why that was kept in the edit um, there's nothing about Ulrich's weight problems which was a huge theme during his career almost nothing um, which I thought was strange but there's an awful lot to cover in this story a hell of a lot and probably some difficult mm, editorial cho choices did have to be made um, I would say also a lot of the people who are going to watch this are a lay audience who won't necessarily understand or know all of the intricacies about this story and um, consequently I think there's a big responsibility for the um, the filmmakers to be honest and not mislead and there are a couple of times where I, I think it is a little bit guilty of misleading um, the, the, the audience and one these sort of hints these allusions to telecom the company being in on the whole conspiracy and my research suggested strongly that that wasn't the case um walter godefroot the team manager at the time who isn't involved in the documentary doesn't feature he told me um unequivocally that he well, should apologize to telecom and t-mobile because they never knew um, you might say, well, they were naive because that was what was going on in professional cycling at that time. But um, I think we have to take good for its word there. In the documentary, however, there is the strong hint that Telecom knew and were complicit. I'm not sure that's the case. I think towards the end of your book, actually, you touch on it quite a lot, don't you? You talk about Freiburg and the, the university and the doctors there and how convincing Doc Hollywood was, especially when someone like Bob Stapleton came in at the end and, and tried to sort of clean everything up and yeah, tried to sort of, you know, build the phoenix from the flames, which he eventually did. And, you know, and the team going forward in, in what became High Road and HTC and all that. But, you know, his views are real sobering influence in things, Stapleton. He sort of anchors the remnants of the team and, you know, and what they build on and become. But the machinery inherited with Freiburg, the doctors and that convincing lie acted out, difficult to believe for a lay person maybe. And that's maybe where the, I guess, the... Um, the producers are coming from on that but you know when you you have trust in medicine studies expertise expertise we naturally i think all expect that to come with morals and yeah if you if you really dig into what you have to write there at the end of the book and have a good read of it then 
you're almost in disbelief at how it was carried mm. out. Uh, another score on which it's slightly misleading there, I think, um, for example, Richard Veronk, the star of Festina, is one of the talking heads um, from the 1998 Festina team. And he sort of makes suggestions about having been the victim of a conspiracy, that Festina was a team that bothered people and that consequently they were targeted. Um, there are a few... A few sort of, again, there's a bit of sort of innuendo um, about other conspiracies which I think are unfounded and I think it's kind of dangerous to put those out into the world because, as I say, um, a lot of the audience won't be familiar with all of the intricacies of these stories and they might they might jump to the wrong conclusions. Um, I'm, I'm sort of nitpicking here, but um, Fabio Cassatelli's death in 1995 is talked about and footage is used of Fabio Cassatelli lying on the tarmac with blood pouring from his head, which is, I think there's a sort of an unspoken agreement in the cycling media never to use those images, and whether it's TV or in photography, they are used here, and that certainly made me wince. Um, but generally, Rob, generally, it is a very worthwhile documentary should people have the chance to watch it i would also really recommend i think on youtube now you can well you can use automatically generated subtitles and even get those subtitles translated i would recommend watching the hotel matza interview with jan Ulrich, which you will find on youtube and matza that's m-a-t-z-e i would also very much recommend maybe doing the same thing if you can make that work with subtitles and translations and um, there's another documentary that was released by ARD and ZDF German National Television last year being Jan Ulrich which is um, a more stylish product I would say than um, the Hunted der Gejagte the Amazon Prime documentary and that one of course released last year doesn't feature Jan Ulrich but interestingly enough Rob Ulrich has has referenced this a few times in interviews over the last few days that he could sense from that watching being Jan Ulrich which is also f um, five parts um, he sensed that the German public's feelings towards him had softened changed and he talked about how fair it was and that's another another feature I think of what Ulrich is saying now is that this is someone who doesn't really bear any malice and I think that's admirable because um I think there were times when he could have felt very, very resentful about the way he's being treated and and by certain individuals. He's he's done an interview in the last few days with Hayot Zeppelt, who was a German national television's anti-doping, resident anti-doping expert. And he was in the front line of sort of exposing Ulrich. And Ulrich's given him an interview in the last few days and um, seems pretty kindly disposed towards him. And, and again, I think that sort of speaks to um, what a an affable gentleman um, Jan Ulrich is and, and has always been um, so I would recommend looking that up as well being Jan Ulrich on you can watch it on YouTube um, and as I say try and give the subtitles a go and if not um, hopefully fingers crossed Der Gejagte the hunted the new Jan Ulrich documentary will make its way onto English speaking Amazon in the next few weeks and um, well in the meantime happy birthday happy 50th birthday to Jan Ulrich he's looking forward to the next portion of his life he says he's, he's wasted lost a lot of years um, in this sort of trapped in this silence and now 
He's got it off his chest. He got a lot of off his chest, Rob. He went into a lot of detail. Again, I did feel slightly vindicated um, or just on a few details as well. He talks about when his doping started um, shortly before the 1996 Tour de France. That was certainly what my research indicated as well. And that's in the book. Um, there will be things. There will be discordant notes. Um, he's... His version, for example, of his, his altercation with the Hollywood star Till Schweiger, um, who is his neighbour in Mallorca in 2018, this uh, sort of um, well-documented fight um, altercation they had, which ended up, um, which re resulted in Ulrich being arrested. Um, his version of events is slightly different to the version of events that I was able to piece together in the book. But generally speaking, I must admit, last week I spoke about being slightly anxious about what might be revealed, lest I have completely, had completely um, misreported something, but I don't believe that is the case. Well, I can vouch for the fact that you were a little anxious about that, because when you started squatting at my house last week, I know that you spent the entire weekend watching and re-watching the documentary. And I think it's only natural joking aside, Daniel, because I was with you a lot of the time you were doing that painstaking research. The effort you put into making the book, we went on a couple of great trips to Berlin together. We've nosed around Mallorca where I used to live and what have you. Um, and it must have been personally a hugely revealing and, and fantastic moment, really, just to hear from the horse's mouth, really, a lot of the things that you've been trying to piece together all of those years. And because you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it just to tell all the listeners that make sure you get your copy of Ulrich, The Best There Never Was, because it is an absolutely brilliant read. Well, Rob, in the next part, we'll be talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Well, Rob, as promised, I'm about to shine the spotlight on you. But just before we move on, just as, a, as, a, uh, just as a footnote to the discussion we had in part two, um, I did want to ask you one thing. I got a message from... Um, someone I know who works in professional cycling, I won't say um, their name, but um, talking about Jan Ulrich and talking about, well, the issues that some people might still have with him and people of his generation and the, um, well, the ill-gotten gains question. Um, people like Jan Ulrich who, well, in fact, in his particular case, I think he's, he's lost a lot of his fortune um, that he amassed. However, um, Jan Ulrich is someone who, well, he, I think he said in the Hotel Matza podcast, um, when he turned professional in 1995, he was already on quite an inflated salary for uh, Neopro, over 100,000 euros. Um, his experience in his adult life has been that of a wealthy man, and he's continued to be a wealthy man. And by virtue of being a very successful cyclist, and to be a very successful cyclist, he doped and of course wealth compounds as well um once you become slightly wealthy it's easier to become even more wealthy and even more wealthy good example of that lance armstrong uh, as many of the listeners will know um, a lot of his wealth now comes from investments that he made um, for example in, in uber investments that he couldn't have made wouldn't have made um if he hadn't mm, reached the status that he did reach through professional cycling rob um you know, if you speak to someone like, for example, uh, Christophe Basson, who was a rider in the 90s who refused to dope, and he was a rare rider of that generation in top teams anyway, who refused to dope, he would tell you that he bears no malice towards these riders because 
Christophe Basson, by maintaining his moral integrity, was able to develop an inner sort of a moral richness or um, moral kind of wealth, I suppose you could say, um, that far outweighs, surpasses whatever material wealth others were able to accrue. And he, um, he will always tell you that he's had a happier life in his opinion, than someone like, for example, Lance Armstrong or Jan uh, Ulrich. How do you feel about this and how should we feel about this? It's a moral maze. Um, yeah. uh, what I would say is that I completely agree with uh, Monsieur Propre's dis- description there because I think, you know, we all know when we do something nice, a good deed, you know, you feel content, you feel happy, you feel, I, I suppose, how you should feel as a, a good human being though um, and I would imagine that he's had a less sleepless nights and things like that than uh, you know Jan Ulrich and, and Lance Armstrong and, and other people who made a different decision but of course had to to a certain extent deal with the consequences now making those right moral decisions on the other side of it probably doesn't pay the bills at the end of the month um, which the other with the other lot were able to do but uh, honestly I I think it's very difficult uh, you know Look at life in general. Nothing is black and white, Daniel. There's nuance in everything. And, and you know, there's actions and consequences to different decisions. I would not want to judge someone. I would probably say I prefer to be on the, the Basson side of things. But can we all say that had we been in that di- sort of position, would we have made that decision? I'm not sure. I, and I don't think until you're put into that position, with all the different pressures, you know, you might have an ill parent you're trying to pay for some treatment for, or you might have a child on the way that you're going to worry about, about paying the bills for. You might be fantastically fine and strong in your personality and you don't have any other pressures in life so you can make a different decision. Every decision will be personal. I think it's very difficult for us to make a a, a moral judgment. Yeah, and everyone's moral barometer is different isn't it um there are some people who are more materialistic than others but rob uh, this is a it's it's difficult to say to someone that the wealth and the fortune doesn't matter when at a time when let's face it you know the last few years there's been an awful lot of talk about the cost of living and Mm -hmm. how you know when so many people are struggling to get by um then it becomes an even harder circle to square um, for some people i would suggest um but as i said everyone has a different moral compass don't they and everyone is free to have their own moral compass um rob uh, i thought i promised we would end this week's discussion this week's podcast by talking a bit about you talking a bit about commentator camp thought we give people a bit, a bit of an insight because most years i think every year um, around about this time of year you retreat um, you go monk you go dark um, in order to prepare the coming season and that is what you are doing at the moment um, particularly i think you work quite hard on the grand tours now the work of a commentator i think well you've talked about this before I think a lot of listeners are familiar with some of the preparation that goes into the job of a commentator, not only in cycling, but in other sports. We've we've seen photos, for example, of the notes that commentators take with them um, into their workplace. I've seen yours. Um, it's notes about individual riders. It's notes about locations. It's notes about routes and so on and so forth. And um, you told me the other day that you're starting from scratch you're going tabula rasa um, yep. this winter 
Why is that? Um, I think we got into the second half of this season and I realised that I myself hadn't had a real rest in a few years, probably since the height of the pandemic, partly through choice because I enjoy and I feel very, very lucky to be able to do what I do. I mean, it's not a proper job, is it? I work very hard at it, but, you know, could be going down the pit and uh, things like that and, you know, working a lot harder for a lot less enjoyment. But we've got a lot of race days now, haven't we? We've got longer broadcasts. In reality, I would say in the last five years, the job has changed beyond recognition um, in terms of keeping going, trying to keep it interesting for as long as possible. Um, you know, it's hard enough for the audience having to listen to me all day, isn't it? And uh, without it being interesting, so you have to try and make it interesting. So I got to a stage in the second half of the season where I was seeing all these new transfers coming and thinking, oh my word. That rider's going to be that rider. There's like a third or a half of this team change. You've got another name change. And I just suddenly thought that I wanted... It was time to bring fresh and new information as well as sort of the obligatory stuff that needs to be repeated for newer casual viewers or just for sort of plain editorial correctness. Well, I wanted to dig deeper, find out new things about riders, places, uh, races... And I just decided that, yeah, start a completely new big research document, which... In the last few years, I've probably done maybe twice in the last 10, 15 years or so. But now, instead of adding to it, I've deleted it all, dropped a bomb on it, and it's all starting again. So it's a pretty big job, really. Rob, we have also been talking in the last few days about, I suppose, some of the more technical aspects of commentating broadcasting. Now, you, you're a real... You're a purist you're a real specialist you're the ultimate professional um, on this front as well and you've also got a lot of experience now you've been doing this for around 20 years but it's something that maybe the audience is less aware of Um, delivery we you and I we were talking the other day about our sort of role models in this respect people who speak well basically speak very fluently have a great cadence um We've got a bit of a, a very sort of offbeat, left field, common idol in this respect. Um, there's a, a president of an Italian football club, um, Aurelio De Laurentiis, is the president, someone who Chiro will know very well. Um, he's the president of the um, of Napoli's football team. Um, he's also a big figure in cinema. And we've, in the past, we've identified him as someone who speaks brilliantly with no... Not necessarily it, the content, I think we must stress, no, but no, his cadence it, and his delivery. It, yeah, His delivery um, in total control of the words that are coming out of his mouth. Uh, Christian Prudhomme, I don't know if you've if you've ever, well, I'm sure you've paid attention to him when he's been speaking. When I interview him, I always notice that there's almost, well, there are, there's no hesitation. There, there are almost no commas in anything he says. You can transcribe a Christian Prudhomme interview, every sound, every syllable, and you will get perfect prose. Maybe not surprising because he was a commentator, he was a journalist for a long time. But um, we also mentioned Barack Obama the other day, someone whose delivery is fantastic. Um, How much do you think about, also in this period of the year, this time of year, um, how much do you still have to work on that and think about that? I think we're doing so much broadcast, as I just alluded to now, and the fact that things have changed, the audience have changed. We generally don't have commercial breaks anymore. So we go to a commercial break on the network, but we now continue to commentate 
for a different audience who might be watching on a different platform. So we rarely get pause in several hours to think about what's being said. Before, in a commercial break, you might have a chat with someone, you know, usually someone like Sean Kelly or Adam Blythe are alongside me. And, you know, Joe Rousel, who was with me recently in in the UCI Track Champions League, who, by the way, had a fantastic debut as a lead commentator as well the other week, a name to watch out for in that respect. Um, you know, just a little chat. Like, okay, how, you know, how's it going? Shall we come back in with this or shall we think about this? There's none of that anymore. So it probably is good and more useful than ever to stop like I'm doing now and have a think about that as well because we all pick up bad habits in whatever job we're doing, don't we? I mean, we we have comfort words in commentary and podcasters, as I'm sure, you know. Yes. You listen what's to something your, back and think... Com- what's your comfort uh, word? It so depends. Can... It depends, Daniel. It, it, I think you go through give, give quite seriously. Give me an example of a, of a comfort word. <sighs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. But I can... If I listen back... At various stages during a season or a career, I'll think, oh, I'm saying that a little bit too often. And again, it might not be something that the viewer picks up on, but because you're, as a professional, thinking you want to vary up, you want it to be more interesting, it sticks out at you. So I think, one, it's important to listen back. And just touching on, you know, you're talking about Barack Obama and people like that and various orators and people who are good at delivery. I think in broadcasting whether it be in sports or something else, versatility is important. If you're going to be a proper lead commentator, I'm not talking about colleagues here, the experts who are fantastic at delivering the information that they, they, they give us, rather. You can tell it's the off-season. I can't get my words out. Um, you know, that's a completely different job. And I think it's really important we draw that line that there is a, a lead broadcaster and it's probably good that we don't give opinions. We're there to get the best out of people. So I'll f- often ask questions that I probably know the answer to, but, you know, people don't want to hear it from little old me, do they? They want to hear it from the expert next to me. That That's the whole idea of communicating a broadcast. So versatility is important, Daniel. I think I'd advise every broadcaster to do something that isn't your speciality once in a while. You know, um, I've been lucky enough to work... What if, what if broadcasting in general isn't your speciality, but you still have to do it? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I, I've been very lucky to work for broadcasters like the BBC on things like the Olympics and Winter Olympics and what have you. Uh, one, a lot of sports that I don't have a clue about, so you have to educate yourself to try and get the message across in pretty layman's terms about what you're seeing, describe what you're seeing, doing it on the radio as well as the telly. Um, and also, working in environments like that you're talking about let's say snowboarding just 60 seconds after there's been a link to an awful news development in the real world that really matters so you've got these fantastic broadcasters i mean people like nagam and chetty and clive myrie who for listeners around the world are two fantastic broadcasters in general news on the bbc they've been talking about some awful event and they can they have the ability to change the tone completely during those 60 seconds throw to you to talk about sport and then you have to sort of meet them on that level of tone and then try and take it to somewhere that you know it's not life-threatening that's not horrible that is a moment of distraction and I think that that really helps when you have to find the tone to reflect sort of shocking or tragic instances that cycling unfortunately throws our way sometimes you know think Jakobsen's horror crash um, or very recently and one that's still in in my mind, um, the aftermath of Gino Meda's death earlier this year. Um, 
there's a lot more to, to broadcasting than you know than just rolling off the the nerdy stats and the numbers that I can understand the hardcore listeners and viewers want that all the time because you know that they live their life and they watch every kilometer but those people also have to realize that majority of our broadcasting isn't for them it's for everybody it's to try and f- make everybody feel included and and part of it so yes we might repeat ourselves sometimes uh and you know i know that some people don't think we should get excited when there's a a big moment and things like that but you know they're the moments that that commentary the art of commentary is really about daniel capturing something with a little pause before a little pause after so the editor in 20 years time when something happens to that person they get an award or you know perhaps rather a you know sadly they they pass away or something like that and they're going through the the highlight reel of their achievements then that moment can be captured and replayed in 20, 30 years' time. That is really what the art of commentary is about. But it is a little bit like morality or decathlon socks. Um, everyone's got their own taste, haven't they? Uh, yeah. So there are some people who, there is a sort of classic template of, as you say, Rob, there are these sort of tenets, these canons, which you are probably aspiring to, but there will be people who will prefer a more low-key style of commentary or uh, a commentary which delivers, which maybe leans into statistics and, and uh, that kind of information more heavily than um, someone who, well, one of your great idols, Richie Benno, for example, the cricket commentator, um, very, very sort of understated, but understated stated in a way that suited that sport and that you know that style of commentary wouldn't necessarily um, suit professional cycling but it's it's fascinating yeah voice tone delivery and ability to change that and yes Richie Benno didn't say much sometimes didn't he but then when he raised his voice you knew that something was about to happen and as well in cycling as I say now we're on what was it sometimes six seven hours the idea when we do raise our voice is that the people are having a bit of a siesta wake up and get involved, you know, um, there, there's a lot that goes into it. And um, there's a lot more going on in our ears as well. You know, sometimes we're told to be quiet at certain points. Um, sometimes we have to talk about videos and, you know, you might have this fantastic introduction planned in your head and you're going to start and then the producer says, no, we're playing this in and that throws you off. So there's a lot of live broadcasting, very different to recorded broadcasting. And there's a lot of thinking to be done in your feet and yeah we have to admit that maybe we don't always get it right but as you say Daniel thinking about uh, where you are and a bit of self-reflection is always good in fact in fact I've got a, on my little commentators camp my training camp I've got a, a book with me actually from a very famous bro- a political broadcaster actually not somebody who's an idol of mine but just because I wanted to have a look at a different take on broadcasting and what that person achieved throughout their career so all sorts of things but yep I've come to a place that's pretty special to me down in the Canary Islands while you're um, making sure that my house is nice and safe. A lot of concentration and only good distractions. Bike ride, sunshine, walking, running, a bit of good food and plenty of time in front of the laptop. You're our canary down the commentary coal mine as ever. Um, Rob, it's been a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you for indulging me and the Jan Ulrich chat this week and um, a couple more weeks left two or three more weeks of commentary camp um, sure you'll be hard at work and you'll be back on the podcast imminently um, I would hope I would suggest until then thank you Rob thank you the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnett